changing beliefs very rarely, if ever, comes from convincing or logical argument. And on the contrary, trying to convince provokes an argument back. The vince, the vince and convince is the same in, in vanquish. Have you ever been in a situation where someone tries to vanquish you and then you admit defeat and then say, okay, now I agree with what you just said. Here's a way to change a belief. Give someone experience, an experience that would not be possible based on the, old, the person's old beliefs, especially if that change makes their life better than it would have been otherwise. Joshua Spodek is the epitome of a Renaissance man, a two-time TEDx speaker, number one best-selling author and host of the award-winning Leadership and the Environment podcast, a professor and coach of entrepreneurship and leadership at NYU and Columbia Business Schools. He's also a regular speaker on environmental leadership at organizations and institutions such as Boston Consulting Group, Google, IBM, Harvard, Princeton, West Point, MIT and Stanford. He has a PhD in astrophysics and an MBA from Columbia and helped build an X-ray observational satellite for the European Space Agency and NASA. He's swum across New York's Hudson River. He's done over 140,000 burpees, written over 3,500 blog posts. He hasn't flown by choice since March 2016 and takes over a year to produce one bag of garbage. Part one of this two-parter, we cover Josh's upbringing, the impact of his parents' divorce, his education, dealing with insecurity, his curiosity, and discovering his love of math and science, finding joy in discipline and his evolutionary approach to living. We also dive deep into Joshua's commitment to influence and invite the guests he interviews for his podcast and the corporate clients he consults to embrace personal behavioural changes that will impact the environment. Josh explains the process of taking actions and the joy that results from the values he lives by. We also discuss why his approach can be embraced by anyone it's an episode packed with ideas and information and tips on how to actually live a more sustainable life. I hope you enjoy the intellect, the inspiration, the environmental action, and the leadership principles of Joshua Spodek. Joshua. Mark. <laughs> Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Glad to be here. It's excellent. We're really, really pleased to have you here. And I have to say, I don't think we've had anyone on the show that I could call a Renaissance man. I mean, your bio is quite unique. A TEDx speaker, award-winning author, there's award-winning podcaster. Mm-hmm. You've run however many marathons is it now? I've finished seven, uh, run six. Yeah, you've swum across the Hudson. You've competed in Ultimate. You speak in leadership from everywhere from West Point to Stanford to MIT. You have started your own venture. Uh, you have an MBA and also a, a degree in astrophysics. Mm-hmm. It's just astonishing. Do you ever have time to watch Netflix? <laughs> I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. I've, Near have I. Yeah. We've got something in common. That's about <laughs> as far as it goes. And we do a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I've never climbed the corporate ladder. I've had a nine-to-five job at times in my life, but I haven't done that. Okay. You've also, and this is something we're going to come on and speak about, is that you have been living a very frugal life, but very joyful life for the last few years because you've become very environmentally conscious and careful in your decisions? Uh, it looks that way from the outside. I would say a very abundant life. And okay. I, I, I stand corrected. Yeah, I would not have... Well, frugal... Fru- I mean, it is frugal from one perspective, but from my perspective, I, I've never eaten better, for example. I've never eaten more. Yeah, I can imagine. Because I'm, I'm falling behind you, uh, but some way behind, and I might have to get some good tips. But we, we always start with upbringing. Uh-huh. But I, I read on your site that your mission is to help people 
to live by their values, and I'll quote directly, especially their environmental values, creating and finding joy, meaning, value, importance, purpose, passion, another emotional reward in the process. Yeah. How long has that been your mission? Oh, yeah, it's funny because as you were saying that, meaning, value, importance, purpose, in my first book, I just put MVIP, meaning, value, importance, purpose. It, it, I coined that for myself in, in writing that. And it certainly has not been my whole life. A lot of the, the, actually, if you look at the achievements of mine, the early ones are much more about me achieving something personal. Mm -hmm. The later ones are much more about me serving others. And the meaning, value, importance, and purpose, that much more comes from later. That comes from helping other people or, or trying to. So that really came after business school, after learning some of the, more, the principles of, of, or the practice of, of uh, the social and emotional skills underlying leadership and initiative. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you've gone down a sort of a parallel track to the approach that someone like a Bill Gates would have, which is make your money first and then give back. But you do it. It's not quite in the, the traditional startup and making money part of way. But you have focused, as you say, on your personal development before shifting your, the, your focus skills and to benefit society. Well, you say it as if there was a choice. At the beginning part, it wasn't that I was like, let's focus on personal uh -huh. development or personal growth. It, it was really, I just, there was a path in front of me. And I did, like, I wanted to succeed on a path that others laid. Now I would say, I wouldn't have said this at the time. There was a path in front of me and I was like, I'm going to do as well as possible. Actually, it's funny. I, I recently came across the letters th that I sent to my high school girlfriend. So these are like love letters that I wrote in the late 80s. And one of the things I... I I mean, there's the stuff about me and her, but the, the backdrop of it was me in, in my first year in college. And I was surprised to see how little drive I had. I would get good grades and I did well, but I picked the classes that were the best that I saw in the book. You know, they'd give you a, guidebook, uh, a catalog at the beginning of the semester. I picked the ones I liked the most. I didn't have something driving me. I didn't have something, I mean, really, if I, if I want to describe it in, ext in extreme terms, I was living a rat race. Mm. Someone else had created a maze and I was just doing, I was like, I'm going to do it as well as possible. But it wasn't, I wasn't living by my values. I wasn't achieving my goals. I was just doing what, I was just succeeding by other people's standards. Okay, so you broke out of that cycle at some point, out of that race. I'm going to come on and talk about the fact that you live by your values, a specific, a specific question to that. But let's let's hold that in relation to how your upbringing took you down that route. Let's go back to your upbringing, uh -huh. where, where you were born. I've done a bit of research on you. Uh -huh. I haven't found out where you were born. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, Chestnut oh, yes, Hill Hospital. I, well, I did read that you spent a lot of time in the, not the most salubrious parts of Philadelphia. Yeah. After my parents got divorced, uh, we lived in some sketchy neighborhoods. Anywhere yeah. near Point Breeze? Not near Point Breeze. It was Germantown. Yeah, okay. I mean, we all, one, one par my parents got divorced and... and my two sisters and I went back and forth between houses. So one was in Mount Airy and one was in Germantown. Mm -hmm. And the Germantown one was, yeah, it, 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 you wouldn't want to be there at night. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine we went and interviewed one of our first guests, Tyreek Glasgow in um, Point Breeze. Uh -huh. uh, he used to run a corner there dealing drugs. Oh, run a corner. Uh -huh. He ran a corner indeed. It was just, it was straight out of um, the wire. And he was shot 11 times, went to prison, and then came back and rehabilitated himself. And now he runs a foundation on the same corner, trying to change children's lives one house at a time. Huh. Um, so it's interesting. And I stood on that corner on a cold September day last year. Oh, yeah? Going, 
okay. And someone came up to me and said, are you from the DA's office? Uh-huh. <laughs> you can imagine. So yeah, I know a little bit about Philadelphia and those areas, so I can imagine what it was like. So you grew up there. How did your parental support and their guidance or direction affect you on that journey, given that you've said you found yourself in this very enclosed rat race? That's a big question. It is a very big question. It's hard to wrap it all up. And you can start, I mean, just focus on any one bit in terms of what was an impactful part of your upbringing. Obviously, your parents separated, must have had some form of short-term and potentially enduring effect on you. Well, the divorce was um, when I was very young. I was three or four years old, and it felt normal to me. So I, I don't really have any... For some time, I had some memories of them being together, but not really anymore. I mean, both of them were very supportive of, you know, we always had the message, you can do whatever you want. You, we support you in these things. And they did, as, as much as they didn't get along with each other, they fully agreed on supporting us, and no one played anyone against each other from any direction. Now, I... I had a very religious upbringing, and I that clashed with me very deeply. I, it really felt like oppressive, and and there's that really didn't work well for me. I mean, I had to go to religious day school, and I had to go to religious stuff on weekends. Catholic, Jewish, Jewish, right? Oh, it's just funny. My parents. Th- this is something that that factors in probably heavily. I'm not sure exactly sure how. My parents. My my dad was born Jewish and was raised borderline Orthodox, but I think not by his parents. I think he chose that. I mean, I've never really gotten the full story. My mom was born Lutheran in South Dakota. They met in India in the 60s. This is before the Beatles. They were, born, they were both on Fulbrights in a city called Ahmedabad, India. And how they were both there doesn't make sense. Once they were both there, there's like seven Americans there. So they, for them to meet, it was natural. Then they got married, had three kids. And that kind of, and then when my, after the divorce, my mom remarried a guy who was Unitarian which was like Christian, but not very, not very, not a whole lot of supernatural mm-hmm. stuff there. And so w- there was Hanukkah, there was Christmas, there was everything. And it just seemed like normal to us. I mean, at one house, there wasn't the Christmas stuff. At the other house, there was the Christmas stuff. At both houses, there was the Hanukkah stuff or the, the Jewish stuff. It was, it was a lot of everything. So we felt very American. And yeah, I guess there was a lot of diversity within the house. My, my mom's second husband, came with two kids so there was there was a full house so we were all together yeah. five kids at one house and then the two would be at, at their mother's house and I would be with my two sisters at the other house and you know you had to coordinate like if I had a violin lesson depending on which house I'd be at I'd have to carry it to school and back and forth and stuff so there was some there was a sense of home Philadelphia still feels like home like mm-hmm. only New York and Philadelphia ever felt like home and oh and I'll mention something else the food co-op there's a, a food co-op called Weaver's Way. And it's kind of on my mind because this week's New Yorker had a big story about the, the Brooklyn Park Slope co-op. Yeah. And now I think if you join the Weaver's Way in Philadelphia, new members get, I think, membership numbers in the tens of thousands. And my dad, I think he's number 56. Whoa. So, so they would get together and drive down to get the, the, um, pro, the bulk produce for a community and bring it back up and, and started forming the stuff. And... We never allowed sugar cereals in the house. There was no soda in the house. and But we still, I mean, we still weren't cooking totally from scratch either. But yeah, there was food was, we had like natural food around. We couldn't have, oh wait, but then on Rockland Street, they would give out welfare sandwiches at the at the top of the block. And there's no questions of like, if you're here, you're, you're on welfare. And our neighbors would have these giant containers of welfare peanut butter. And the peanut butter was like had all that sugar added to it, and we didn't get the sugar stuff, and it tasted like like peanut butter cups. 
So I'd go and just eat all of peanut butter cups. <laughs> was this your this this was a deliberate decision on your mother or father to focus on your diet and ensure that there was no sugars and or was it just uh, down to economic think, necessity? It's not that they were strictly like we're gonna have a great great diet. I think they just wouldn't accept soda in the house. They mm. wouldn't accept. Quite enlightened, for the time. I, I wanted to say it felt normal at the time. Because I think that's just the way they lived. I don't think that they were particularly hippie. They were too old. They were older than the hippies. They were born before uh, World War II ended. But yeah, I think for them to, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Because we, I mean, we'd still order pizza and Chinese food and stuff and eat that for dinner sometimes. So what was it about the religious upbringing that gave you an aversion to it? It was, I mean, it's hard to say because it was a long period of time. And there were times when I liked it and times that I didn't like it. And the way that I feel now, and I'm not sure if I'm, back projecting stuff but now i don't feel like i've chosen atheism or apathyism i feel like that's how i was born mm -hmm. and so something was being forced on me there was definitely a lot of rules that didn't make any sense to me i i live a very structured life now i'm a big fan of rules that i have a part in that makes sense to me but rules that don't make sense to me that's authoritarian it, it, if you look at leadership step by step my first book yes, and the courses that came out of it. It's, it's teaching. The best word I have for it is leadership. If I had a little bit more time, I say the social and emotional skills underlying business, but also any relationships. It teaches things like how to speak authentically, how to listen, how to make people feel understood, how to inspire people. And the core of it is really, you got to go where the person is. You have to make them feel understood. You have to work with where they are. My childhood is the opposite of that. If, if that was your attitude to structure and to the doctrine of the, the church, or how did you react to the institution? Uh, rebellion. Well, no, to educational institutions, because equally there's certain Or to educational structure. institutions. Yeah. So, yeah, a big shift happened. So before the shift, I, there's some stuff, I mean, I certainly liked being, like at the end of the summer, and I'd go back to school, I was looking forward to seeing my friends. And I cried at the end of sixth grade. K, K to six, I was w in one school. And virtually everyone went to the school across the street from that school. And I was going to public schools at that point. And looking back, I'm very happy that I went to that public school instead of the private school. But I never saw them again. And I, I was very sad to miss them. I felt like I still feel like they're part of my life. Well, I think when I started at Penn, uh, I went back to my old day school. And one of my teachers was there from years and years before, right? This is like 20 years earlier. And... I said, hi. And she was like, oh, I remember you. She, she remembered me. And she said, the I'm troublemaker. So, that's what <laughs> so she said. I'm so glad that you're here. I have my first one like you since you. There's been no one like you since then. I was like, and when she said it, I mean, you gave, the, you gave it away. But when she said it, I thought she was going to be like, you're the best. <laughs> and she goes, this guy will not pay attention. He will not behave. He will not. Like, how do I, what do I do with him? Because you're the only one who's ever been like that. I was mystified because at this point I was starting my PhD program. And so I, I said to my mom, would you believe, you know, I went to visit and she said I didn't behave. And my mom goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? But that's really bizarre because I remember my school days <clears throat> and I remember being pretty misbehaved. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, I'd have gone back and they'd said, yeah, it's you. <laughs> With I, that sort of knowing, look, I know exactly what they were talking about. Why do you think you didn't have an, a, an enduring memory of, of those school days and your rejection maybe of the status quo or whatever it was or ADD maybe? Was it? Well, definitely by that time, I was very, this was after the shift that I mentioned that I, I really love physics and I, I was totally dedicated into learning the stuff. Before that, 
I'll tell you what my mom said. She said, yeah, if a teacher didn't challenge you, you would give her hell. Uh And so she would say, uh, that's what a mom would say, right? Challenge you intellectually? Intellectually. And there were classes that I really loved and would put myself into. I know that one day I was absent from, I was sick in junior high. And I came in the next day and all all my friends were like, class was so quiet yesterday without you talking to everyone around you. You know, I think there was also a lot of insecurity of me. I was geeky and nerdy and I wanted to fit in. And so I think I would talk to people a lot to try to joke around. School wasn't, Why did you it feel didn't make you sense to, to me. Because I didn't, because <laughs> I wanted people to like me. I, I, I was insecure. What do you think drove that insecurity? I mean, do you think it was partly as a result of the divorce or a lack of security in home life? As you're asking it, my initial response is I thought everyone was insecure. <laughs> that doesn't suggest why, there would be that, why that would be the case. Well, I suppose that's a relative statement, isn't it? I mean, everyone's got their own insecurities in some, to some degree. It's hard to, I don't know what would have made me insecure. I thought it was just everyone had to go through a period in life where they didn't really know what life was about and I didn't, and so I was grasping. Mm-hmm. It's weird for me to, it's weird for me to think of like a 10 year old kid being secure. Maybe your intellectual capacity was such that you were, you were thinking more about life at that age than many other children do. I just wish I had access to those memories. Yeah. I, I can tell you that when I read these letters to my high school girlfriend in, into the beginning of college, my entire life people have been telling me that I'm smart. Mm-hmm. I've never felt, there's no one that I couldn't learn from. I've never felt like I was particularly smart. Reading those letters, this is word for word what I thought. I see nothing in these letters <laughs> indicating any intelligence at all. Not at all, but like nothing out of the ordinary. I was like, what do people see in this guy? Like, he's just doing what he's supposed to do. He's not, there's no initiative on his part. So, yeah, I I do know that like tests, sometimes I would do well in. I I do remember, I was just thinking about the other day, in sixth grade, I remember getting a 55 on a math test out of 100. So that's a very failing grade. And I don't, yeah, the behavior I had trouble with, there's a post on my blog where I saw a movie that spoke to me about my childhood that was, it said to me something I'd never seen before. I don't know if you came across this one. It was Fanny and Alexander oh, by, yeah. and Bergman, Bergman yeah, Igmar yeah, Bergman. And I was totally, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Yeah. There's the the new father after the father dies and she gets remarried. And that, that character was dramatized to be a supervillain, but the way that he treated Alexander I had not felt those emotions so perfectly. So it had gotten me to feel emotions exactly how I felt when I was a child growing up. That describes how I felt about religion. That's interesting. So that that, that, that visceral reaction was the first time that it connected you to childhood when you saw that. That character, I believe with his heart and soul, believed he was making this young boy, he was helping this young boy lead a, lead a great life. I think most people would see he was a villain, a monster. I, I think my father did everything in his power to, to raise me as best he could. And in my view, it was so twisted and uh, lacking what is the other person's perspective, very self-righteous. Mm. And it's kind of hard because what, what can you say? He was doing his best and it just was uh, twisted is the word that comes to mind. So let me try and so I can get my head around. It's getting really heavy. <laughs> We'd like to to get a little bit of context around our guest's upbringing mm-hmm. uh, to understand 
the role of things like self-belief and identity. So you're recognised by teachers going back of being a little bit of disruptive trouble, not necessarily troublemaker, but disruptive <clears throat> in class. Yeah. You wanted to fit in. You were wanting to be liked by the other kids. Clearly, you must have been intellectually curious if you were challenging teachers at yeah, the same time. Yeah, some I was very curious about, yeah. But it feels like you, you were many things. If you didn't feel that you were particularly smart, or uh, and looking back on those letters as well, do you, is there a time when you remember developing a sense of self-belief and direction, going, this is what I want to do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when was that? That was second my, my junior year in college. When I started college... I was trying to avoid taking math and science classes because everyone identified me as very math and scientific and, and geeky and nerdy, and that was killing my social life. And so I wanted to get away from that. And after my sophomore year, I took a year off from college and lived in Paris for a year, and it was just time away from school. Before I left, I would just go through the course catalog and I wonder what I want to take. I'd take what seemed interesting. So there's like math, art classes. I did take a science class or two and history and philosophy and stuff like that a lot of required classes too. And then after that, I started my beginning junior year, I was still taking a few different classes, but I was thinking about majoring. There's some deal if you took if you took some major in education, you could get a high school, you get a five-year license to teach high school. And I was thinking, okay, I'll be a high school teacher. I'll teach math and science. And so I had to take psychology classes, sociology classes, but also math and science classes for that. And I liked all of the classes, but none were nearly as challenging as the math and science classes. And so they were much more rewarding. And so second semester, when it came time for a second semester, I said, I'm going to major. I'll still teach science, but I'm going to get a PhD in physics, and I'm going to teach at a college level. And I'm going to go full on. And if it kills my social life, so be it. I love this stuff. It was learning about relativity and quantum and Einstein and, and Newton and you know, Feynman, this was, there was nothing, everything changed. And I just wanted to take that. I took, I think one semester I took seven classes, almost all math and science. Uh, there was what, I think there was a that I really killed your social life at that point. Yeah. Or maybe I accepted that I didn't have much of a social life. There was, uh, I mean, I played Ultimate Frisbee and that was my social life. It was the team. I, I loved that game and I still love that. Well, I can't play it really these days, but there's a class I really wanted to take two classes I really wanted to take, they overlapped by about 15 minutes. Like literally, not overlapped, like they one ended after the other one began. And so I got special permission to show up a little late for the second one. And I would run from one building to the next in order to make it in time. That class actually, it was a lab and it was a digital lab. We had to ultimately build a little small computer. And I had a friend in the class, actually a teammate in Frisbee. And because we were grouped together, we finished, I got the same grade as the group did and we all did fine. But after, by the end of the semester, I'd missed enough from those beginnings that they like put stuff together that I didn't know how they put it together or why. So I got a grade but didn't really deserve it. So that, I mean, by the rules, I got it. After I graduated college, after I had my diploma, I got special permission. I went to the TA and got the key to the lab and I went in and I redid it myself from scratch. Wow. I just loved that kind of stuff. Picture that. Mm -hmm. A few months later, I'm in Philadelphia at Penn, and I visit my old day school, and someone who did that, it was just was far, I mean, that's the farthest from my mind, yeah. was misbehaving in class, mm -hmm. because after graduation, I'm still taking classes, I'm still doing stuff for no, you know, I already got the grade. I've heard you say that for getting things done, 
you've come comes from fun and curiosity. Can you explain more about the fun side of why fun is an important part in getting things done? Well, certainly when I look, I mean, now a lot of what I work on is how to motivate people, how to motivate myself. Mm-hmm. So the step one is find the joy in something. So joy, fun, learning, these are all very closely related yeah. to me. I mean, learning is often challenging in a way, but fun and curiosity are very close to me. And first find the joy, first find the motivation, then do it. Like For example, I don't eat meat, I don't eat, I avoid processed foods, I avoid cookies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if the sugar added, it's, yeah, I avoid foods with fiber removed, which is my definition of like if it's if yeah. it's processed. Yeah, so corn syrup, that's out. Hydrogenated oil, that's out. I never chose to stop eating something that I liked. First, I would find out something about it that would infect me. For example, hydrogenated oil. I grew up thinking like unsaturated fat is not super healthy. Saturated fat is more unhealthy. And trans fats were in the middle. Mm-hmm. The more I read about it, trans fats are more unhealthy. And I believe that these companies that sold hydrogenated stuff would tell us that it was less, not so bad. So once, I don't eat that because it's unhealthy. I don't avoid that because it's healthy. I avoid it because I can't do business with someone who treats me that way. Yeah. And even if they found out that it was healthy, they thought it was unhealthy and they were selling it to me for their profit, for their shelf life or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's the opposite of what you're asking about. Like that, there was, n- I'm not, it's the opposite of joy and therefore I'm not doing it. it was, it's like they're tricking me. And the burpees, for example, I've done a lot of burpees. And you have indeed. You <laughs> just give the current running total because it's into the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it's, a, it's like 140,000 around now. And it's extraordinary. I don't keep track. I just have a spreadsheet and yeah. I just update the date periodically uh-huh. and it, it updates it for me. What are you up to? About 50 a day? I do a little over 50 a day. Yes. Yeah. All in one go? No, I do. It depends on, like, today's a cardio day. So I was mm-hmm. rowing. And that's usually a leg exercise. So I do diamond push-ups during the burpees, which is a little more harder on the arms. So I do 20 four mm-hmm. most days i do 27 some days i do 26 it depends on i adjust them slightly for the other exercises that i do and and then that's in the morning and in the evening so th- the baseline is three sets of nine mm-hmm. morning and evening yeah this i don't know if you can pick up that there's a game here that i'm playing in my head how i put these things together is like a kid playing with lego mm-hmm. like how do i put these together to make something like the most beautiful structure and not beautiful it, everything fits together in a way that's kind of fun mm. or joyful joyful and there's an elegance a harmony and yeah before i start the burpees i'm still perfecting them i but a burpee is basically when you, you drop do- down do a push-up and then jump up as jump up in the air yeah one is kind of like a little fun thing five you'll probably be breathing heavy most people can't do 10 and a fitness expert called it a candidate for the best single exercise. Mm-hmm. And once I heard that, then over some time, it evolved into yeah, what and Logically, when you've got limited space, limited time, it's a great way. Yeah, it takes no strength equipment. Strength and cardio, it brings all the different muscle groups together, yeah. working them, so it's, it's great. But I managed 10 last night after my run. I was like, oh, <laughs> I wanted yeah. to see if I could push it to 20, and I'm like, nah. But it's, it, it's it, hard, I it's hardcore. I couldn't at the beginning either. Before I start, I have the same dread that I think anyone has before I start each one. And I have to 
every single time I have to find that joy. Mm-hmm. Now it's funny because right now I happen to be reading Maria Sharapova's autobiography or memoirs it's up to until be really now. Good. I've had a couple of people mention that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a friend had a copy and she was like, "Sure." I, she had a review copy. I, I, I don't know. It was, she just had it, so I'm reading it. And now, like, I read that. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to do it. I read this other book by this guy, the the champion mindset, I think. And he was he was a psychologist, who were, he was a sports psychologist. And I read that. I'm, I was like, oh, I can't wait. Like, there are times when I really look forward to it, mm-hmm. although it's still hard. <laughs> yeah. But just to go back, you talked early on about that sense of being in this rat race in someone else's yeah. defined role and set of behaviors. You clearly broke out of that. I think so, yeah. That the way you were describing that sort of that joy, that fun, it sounds like what you've done is you've created a designed life around your own set of standards and direction and criteria. Would that be fair yeah, to say? It, the way you put it makes it sound a little more... D- the word designed implies that the the path that I took is really like I did what I thought was best at the time and I keep refining, refining, refining. Mm-hmm. So there's no overall saying how does everything fit together well would test driven development be a better term to use (laughs) might be yeah or designed in the sense of like evolution designed by an evolutionary process of the things there are many things that i started that i've just let go so like the cold showers and the burpees have stuck uh the cooking myself is stuck but some other thing it's hard for me to remember other things we interviewed a guy called joshua holland who's a fitness and life uh, coach instructor mm-hmm. and he has a great line which is if you want to change your body and mind you've got to change what you do all of the time yeah with your body and mind all of the time and i think his whole view is that you you know people want to change but mm-hmm. they never change so they have to get into the point of changing their habits their daily habits their daily attitudes their daily behaviors mm-hmm. which seems to overlap a lot with what you've been doing yeah i oftentimes realize there's something i want in my life how do i get that and then eventually my mind gets around what to do to make it happen. With, with my diet habits, it's generally been, like I can feel it happening with me. It's been happening over the past year or so with cheese. Like the last animal product that I've eaten. And I, the last time I had cheese was about a year ago. And I was just talking to someone. I know that it will taste good. I know that it will be pleasing to my palate. I lived in Paris for years. But it's just slowly turning into something I don't like. And my mind is doing that. And the not cheese is becoming more and more delicious. Mm-hmm. And you need, need to tell me what that is because I, I'm after watching the documentary. The Game Changers? Game Changers, uh-huh. yeah. We've been going pretty much, not vegan, but mm-hmm. we've definitely been vegetarian apart from cheese. Yeah, it's and, uh, it's. and it's hard. So, how did you manage to wane yourself off and, and find an alternative? It's the same process. You know, when I when I stopped eating meat, I wanted to stop eating meat long before I stopped eating meat. I thought I would die without it. I thought there, I'd die of lack of protein or something like that. The stuff that really was the hardest was hot dogs and hamburgers and chicken nuggets because those were the most it's fun. Like cheese steak. Well, the cheese steaks, <laughs> yeah. Well, I was in New York, so oh, yeah. the Philly cheesesteaks outside of Philly, not the same. And what happened was I bought some chicken breasts and breaded them and fried them up and made my own chicken nuggets. And see, before then, a chicken nugget and meat aren't really that close. That's pretty processed. Mm -hmm. And now in my head, the connection was made between a a chicken and what I was eating because I 
breaded and fried it up myself. And then it was just a matter of time. I didn't stop eating something I liked. I stopped liking something and I stopped eating it. Mm-hmm. By the time I was on to uh, avoiding cheese, that process had happened so many times, I, I had an expectation of success. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of what you're talking about, this cognitive dissonance between when you know something is not necessarily good for you or someone is miscommunicated or, let's say, persuaded you of the benefits of something like hydrogenated fats when the, the real truth behind it is the opposite. A lot of it comes down to belief systems. Mm-hmm. And you've written a lot about that in yeah. your in your book, your, I think your, your first book. Yeah. And I'd like you to maybe uh, uh, us delve into that a little bit because you're obviously very focused on the environment and leadership in the environment for your podcast. Mm-hmm. And we stand at a sort of quite a, a monumental time in, in history where for over the next seven to let's say eight or nine years, if mm-hmm. we don't change our behaviors at scale, consumers, organizations, countries, mm-hmm. we're facing an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it comes down to a belief system as to whether we contribute to this environmental climate crisis or not. The way that you talk about beliefs and how you get people to sort of change strategies and therefore behaviors as a result of it, I'd love to get your perspective on how do we deal with the people that don't currently have a belief system that we are responsible for this climate crisis? And how do we confront that barrier in a way to driving behavior change? Leaving aside all the people that do believe it, yeah, still can't change their behaviors. Mm -hmm. I I don't know where to begin because it's, it's, there's a lot. Let's begin with the people that do believe, like ourselves. Like I came away from the Social Good Summit after hearing the whole day there at 92nd Street Y, and Christina Figueres summed up her her talk, saying, uh, in terms of climate crisis, the direction we're moving in is positive, particularly organisationally and corporately. Mm-hmm. The speed and scale of the change isn't sufficient, and you come away from that thinking, okay, we need to change. We need to collectively uh, as consumers change our behaviors doing it is very hard and you you've personally taken on some incredible challenges and i know you've talked about b johnson and what she's done Mm -hmm. living in a trash-free home and you talked before we started about the fact that you don't create any trash i try to minimize it but you've i'm nowhere near zero like yeah but you but if everyone was to follow the standards that you've set and b have set we would be well on our way to addressing some of the bigger challenges we have and I'd just love you to maybe just talk about the, the challenges maybe you had in terms of when you, as your belief system changed and you changed your behaviors and your strategies, what we can learn from it. Okay, so changing beliefs very rarely, if ever, comes from convincing or logical argument. And on the contrary, trying to convince provokes an argument back. The Vince, the Vince and convince is the same in, in Vanquish. Have you ever been in a situation where someone tries to vanquish you and then you admit defeat and then say, okay, now I agree with what you just said. My background's advertising. You know that people, rational arguments never win. It's always yeah. emotional. It's always the heart. And and so here's a way to change a belief. Mm-hmm. Give someone experience, an experience that would not be possible based on the old the person's old beliefs, especially if that change makes their life better than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to change, not necessarily, but they'll often change a belief. All right, I looked at my garbage five years ago and saw how much garbage I produced. A lot of it came from food packaging. 
And I didn't like that. And so there's lots of middle stories here, but I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food. Now, I thought I was eating mostly packaged food. I almost I bought almost no vegetables. I bought almost, I, I guess I buy fruit. And that would be feeling, like, oh, I'm getting you know fresh fruits and vegetables, but it was really just fruits. And so I expected that my the variety of my food would go down, that the taste would get worse, that it would be more complicated, it would be less convenient. And the first week was it the first week I had a challenge, so that was kind of fun. But then I made it two and a half weeks, and before I bought my first stuff, first package thing, and then. Some friends were over, and I needed some canned tomatoes, and I already bought something packaged. So I was like, okay, can someone go downstairs and buy a can of tomatoes? And as I'm opening that can, I'm thinking, what? why did I get this can? Like, why did I need to melt aluminum for me to get some tomato? It, it didn't make any sense. But that only happened because I'd been eating fresh before. That's the last can I ever got. Mm -hmm. That was, I don't know, four and a half years ago. Now, I had to learn to cook from scratch. The big thing was boiling beans on the stove, followed by cooking beans in the pre in the rice cooker, uh -huh. followed by buying a pressure cooker. And suddenly, I could cook beans in, in minutes. And now I had a foundation to build on for my whole diet. And now my diet is cheaper, faster, more convenient. And in every, every by every measure that's important to me, it's better. So what was But it? that that conflicts with every belief that I had. So uh -huh. those beliefs went so away. So it wasn't belief that started it, it was behavior that well, triggered a change in beliefs. It was these are a cycle that go together. Behavior people want to raise their awareness. People want to raise their consciousness. This is what they say mm -hmm. in order to then act. Yeah. Behavior changes awareness a million times more than awareness changes behavior. It's funny, I've got a an ex client loves to say and the quote is it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into yeah to think your way into a new way of yeah acting. and everyone in actual practice people when they say they want to raise their awareness they're like oh but you need awareness first okay when something's front page news mm -hmm. for decades weekly whatever threshold of awareness is necessary they're well over that so yeah, yeah you need some awareness the in actual practice we use aware we use this saying that we need awareness as a way of delaying action i think really if we acted we would i think people sense that if they act that they'll realize they could have acted earlier mm -hmm. and then the guilt and shame will will kick in and then and so they'd rather not do that and so they want to get some sort of they so they want to fiddle with their heads in some way to make that go away mm. but acting will get them over that and only acting will and so they're 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 hiding away from the they're they're protecting themselves from feeling emotions that they don't want to feel. let me put this in the first person i was acting preventing myself from acting in a way that would challenge that would bring up these beliefs so i would think to myself i forget if i mentioned this it was six months from when i had the idea to go for a week without packaged food until i actually started that week and the pattern was I would think, oh, I got more garbage, more packaged food that's going to make more garbage. I said I wasn't going to do that. All right, what will I do on day one? What will I do on day two? What will I do on day three? How do I make this work? And that would occupy, that busy work would occupy my mind. The feelings of anticipation of shame and guilt would go away. And 
the once the feelings went away, I would have to I wouldn't have to keep pushing them out, and so I go back to what I was doing otherwise, and another way to do it, day would pass with no action. And then one day I said, "Look, I'm this is going nowhere. I'm not going to die if I don't eat packaged food for a week. It starts now." And so I had the, the awareness was there. I saw the crying Indian ad when I was a kid in the seventies. I knew about pollution and, and, and how much garbage we produced decades before. As everyone hear my voice, they've known it decades before. I knew it was conceivable. People ate without plastic for hundreds of thousands of years. And I knew it was possible. I just thought I would fail. I thought I would not get it. I thought it wouldn't work. And by the way, everyone around me was doing it too. So, I mean, doing, you know, packaging. So it's just easier to keep doing what I was doing. Once I acted, then things changed. So whether it was a belief change first, whether it's action first, to me, the important thing is to act. Use your awareness to give you some direction, but don't wait for awareness to tell you everything Mm -hmm. unless you plan to wait forever. Then act to the extent that you can and get the cycle going of awareness leading to some action, some action leading to some new belief leading to some new motivation leading to some new action and you've got to start somewhere do you believe if you weren't living in a city like new york you could behave and act this way of course still live the same way without the convenience of the facilities and the support services and the ability to buy in bulk that you get in the city of course yeah without a question anywhere i live but i i live here because i i chose to live here by these values Mm -hmm. if i if there was another place I chose to live by the values of that place, I would make it work in that place. I mean, if you're into, I don't know, I don't know if you live in Tulsa, just picking a place randomly, I hope that you live there because that's what you love. If you don't, that's a problem you got to fix. Mm-hmm. But if you love it there, yes, you can live there sustainably as well. I mean, at least more sustainably than, than the average Tulsa does now. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little worked up because people consistently, every time someone asks me, how do you do X? Uh-huh. If I tell them how I did X, they say, oh, well, there you go. I can't do that because my life is different mm-hmm. than yours. And so this ambush happens to me all the time. People ask me this thing so that they can say, no, that's ah, why, I'm that's doing the best I'm asking, I possibly Because I think can. a lot of people look to when they ever hear New York City, they say, oh, well, it's different because it's New York City. You wouldn't be able to do that in small-time America or on the west coast of Scotland. They'll find excuses not to do it mm-hmm. because of location or find something saying, well, you're different because you've got this and you've got that. Mm-hmm. I want to um, encourage people to be inspired by what you, people like you and B. Johnson are doing in living sustainable lives mm-hmm. and taking these actions and starting things. Yeah. I and could, and, and I, what I love about your podcast is the, the, the micro challenges you're giving your guests to take on some form of action, even albeit small, to that, start something. That I invite them to create for themselves. Yes. Yeah, that you invite them to come up with something that they feel that they could do to start some form of action yeah. that changes behavior. Yeah, no one's doing that. Everyone's everyone's seeking coercion mm-hmm. and management, very important. But step one, actually, well, an earlier step than inviting them to come up with something that they could do is to have them share what motivates them. Before that, I have to behave in a supportive, non-judgmental way so that they can expect that when they share something that they care about, which makes them vulnerable, that they can expect that I'm not going to that I'm, going to, that I'm going to support and not judge them on that. And then when that comes out, then then there's something to lead them with. 
if I don't know what motivates them, if I don't know what they care about, all I'm doing is telling them what to do. I don't, I don't like telling people, I don't like pe people telling me what to do. And, and you have a strategy underpinning the guests that you select. Yeah. Could you explain that? Yeah, so I'm not batting a thousand, but pretty high percent of the people that I walk through this process, at the end of it, at the beginning of it, they're as protective as anyone. They'll mm -hmm. talk about the environment in an abstract, non-personal way. You know, oh, you know, you're the expert on that. Oh, I don't really know that much. Or, oh, I hope the experts figure things out. Or, you know, the government should really change. All this talk that has nothing to do with themselves. Now, every single one of them, every, all of us want clean air. No, no, no one wants mercury in their fish. We all have something about the environment that we care about. And once that comes out, then if, if you can connect that to a task and they act on that task for their reasons that they came up with, they're, it's always joyful. Community, connection. Mm -hmm. these, these are the results. And wanting to share this joy, not coercion, joy with others. Now, if I had time to talk to a billion people, I would, or seven billion people, but I don't. So I'm not about personal, I'm certainly about personal change, that's important. But that's not gonna get anywhere. One person out of a billion is not enough. Community influences people. When you look at your neighbor and see what your neighbor does, you're, oh, that's someone doing something. The way that it came to me was something that people know from lots of different places, but one of my guests pointed out that the number one predictor of people installing solar on their homes is someone a neighbor having solar. Mm -hmm. So the more neighbors with solar, the more likely you will have it. The more neighbors who I believe that the more neighbors who are behaving in, in some doing some sort of sustainability something, the more more likely you will. Well, as of now, zero people are doing it. Yeah, they'll do some they'll get some metal straws, which is probably counterproductive anyway. But they don't really get into they don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And if you look around, there's like, I mean, we're here now and there's disposable stuff there. And I'm sure this place touts itself as, I don't know, a new house, but it, probably they would say that they were sustainable in some way. As I was waiting to, as I was waiting downstairs, I looked over at the table. There was a table full of people. One person did not have multiple disposable single-use containers there. And there's plenty of non-disposable things at their disposal, mm -hmm. which they're ignoring, or I don't know what. <clears throat> anyway, okay, so everyone's looking around saying, well, what, what is everyone else doing? while they're getting Starbucks out of their container too, out of the single-use container. And, you know, this happens with um, smoking and obesity and lots of other things that if you know someone who's obese, there's a so certain thing that you will become... To use a sort of a overused term, a tipping point where there might be something, whether it's someone with, like, within one of these influencers in the communities that you're inviting in on your podcast to in invite them to change a behavior in some way, or is it going to be some key influencer or or will it be government action that triggers or some climate disaster that then triggers mass change in, in consumer behavior well, it's, not, I'm it's, with not you. Be, it's not gonna be climate disaster because we've been living climate disasters for decades yeah exactly so and even whether it's fires in sydney or in california or hurricanes it's clearly that's not enough to change behavior hmm. and like i say i i work in a um with a an ngo at the moment and it's inside an organization called purpose Mm -hmm. are completely focused on one of they have a climate lab mm -hmm. and they're there to really drive large-scale behavior change in it yeah even inside that organization there's plenty of people with their metal bottles but you see still a good few with oh, plastic man. bottles well my first talk on leadership in the environment was at columbia's earth institute the lamont doherty labs and i'm talking to this guy who's a graduate student he's gone into earth science in part because he wants to help fix these problems uh -huh. and he says you know josh Sometimes you just got to fly. For example, I'm doing this measurement of this formation in, in Australia. Mm. It's only in Australia. 
what can I do? I got to fly there. And I thought for a second, and I said, do you know anyone in Australia who could measure it for you? Could you call them? And he paused and he goes, oh yeah, I guess I could. So this is a guy who's devoted his life to doing these things. All right, let me finish the question yeah, you asked yeah, before of, course, of yeah. the strategy. So the strategy yeah. is to get the people who are in most numbers of others' communities. So Oprah, LeBron, Serena, these are the people who, I think Oprah is probably in more people's communities. You know, not physical neighbor, but how many people can say, oh, I know who Oprah is. I've, I've like seen her. I've listened to her. I think it's probably like half a billion. That's a lot. I'm not there yet. But I guarantee she cares about the environment. I guarantee if she acted on it, based on if she went through this process, yeah. then people would, more people would respond to her acting on what she cares about for her reasons. Mm -hmm. if, if, if I explain the process, I'm not telling her, a lot of people hear it and they think, oh, Josh is getting her to do something tiny, a little small thing. That's not what I'm doing. It's not small, it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so we'd have to explain, hopefully not just a podcast episode, but maybe a primetime special with her then I think more people would act based on her acting because she's in their community than from all the scientists and legislators, educators and journalists combined. And that's my strategy. So LeBron and Serena and Elon and Sergey and Larry, there's a headline. This has always motivated me. It says, and it's from almost 10 years ago. It says, uh, top three executives at Google have eight airplanes. Actually, I've heard recently, it's actually more. So sure, they can maybe they can make Google carbon neutral. And I think most people would question that. There's probably some funny accounting going on there. But let's say they did. I think most people still say, yeah, yeah, the company, whatever. I want a jet. Mm -hmm. And so as long as the people who are at a leverage point of the system, the people who people look up to and people want to follow, as long as they are getting a jet and as long as they're living you know, the, with the mansions and so forth, then that's the cultural norm. And I want to. That's what I want to influence is cultural norms. You did a post on your on your blog about imagine well-known people responding. Oh yeah, to how we do to the environment. Yeah, everyone and check it, that one out. The, and the, it was my great. Memes. Yeah. yeah, but it, it was everyone from Martin Luther King to Mandela to Gandhi with quotes that what they would have said if they were living today. Or well, not what, what people they today have, say. What we say, but yeah. Yeah. Now, if these people were living today, they certainly wouldn't be standing by, watching, observing what's happening with the environment. I don't think so, yeah. Why do you think Oprah, mm -hmm. why isn't she doing something? Because the as you say, she cares about it. Because the predominant view is that acting on your environmental values is a burden or a chore. It's a distraction. It's mm -hmm. something you don't want to do. And the scientists who know the science best are themselves not living it. Mm -hmm. So the value of personal action on the part of someone who's trying to influence others, if I tell you, you should pollute less, and I am not myself polluting less, what I'm telling you is tell others not to pollute, and you can do what you want as long as it feels justified to you. Mm -hmm. That's what we're all doing. Yeah, That's what we're doing because that's the people who know best are leading us in that direction. They don't think that they're leading us in the direction because they think people will listen to what they're saying and not pay attention to what they're doing, but people watch what they're doing first and listen to what they're saying second. And therefore, we have a world full of everyone saying, yeah, the environment's important to me, but in an accident, an SUV is safer and my child's life is more important and so I'm going to get an SUV. And, and all these people who keep telling me, Josh, you don't understand what it's like to be a, a single mother with three jobs in a food desert when you make your food. Now, first of all, 
at long last, I actually, I was like, my stuff is more accessible in, in situations like that. And, but people are like, something about me, they think that I've, I think that they think I've lived some life with no challenge or suffering or misery. And everything, I, I guess they think I've, I, there's someone like with a silver platter handing me things all the time. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I finally was like, okay, but I actually am not a single mother living in food desert. So I got a single mother living in food desert and I brought over and I made her some of my famous no packaging vegetable stew. And she said, this is great. This is what I've been looking for. I want to bring that to people so that they can do these things. But why do people tell me that I don't get it? I think because they come home sometimes and they're tired and their fridge is full and they still get takeout and they see the garbage that they're, that they're paying for. And they say, oh, what am I doing? And mm-hmm. they say, you know what? I'm so busy. I'm just like that single mother in the food desert. I'm in solidarity with her. And I, I don't know exactly. I'm just speculating. Mm-hmm. But I know that I got a lot of takeout when I was, even after I knew what, what I was doing, the consequences of my actions. And I would justify it. And the justification says, oh, what can I do? My hands are tied. And then Josh is doing something. Or anyone's, I would see someone doing something that I wasn't. I'd think, well, they, they have some ability that I don't. Mm-hmm. You've, so I'm just getting into this stuff. You, <laughs> if I'm getting so, too much into it. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's it's perfect. Rather than talk about the the mother in the food desert, why don't we head off to South Philly together and go and spend half a day with uh, Tyreek on his corner, uh-huh. showing the mothers there how to make the perfect stew? Because oh, the food she invited me. I can't, sorry. She invited me to. She had a potluck coming up, and she invited me to go up and, and teach them. And I, I want to start doing that. Like, mm-hmm. man, the food is so good. And it's but so because cheap, I think that's thing, so if easy you can, to make. If you can give evidence to people and, and watch them and, and let them see what's possible. Yeah, in when their she reacted that way, I thought, then I, this I, is a community that could really help. I, I, if they want it from me, mm-hmm. then I would be happy to make this available. And I want to start a restaurant based on this. Okay, Joshua, this is end of part one, and we'll pick up the rest of the conversation in part two. Okay. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. In part two, Josh explains his self-developed habit-forming technique called Sidcha and breaks down the step-by-step approach that anyone can embrace to create more positive habits and behaviours in their life. Josh also invites me to take on my personal environmental challenge. We discuss the broader environmental challenges facing society and the planet before jumping into the rapid-fire questions that turn out not to be rapid-fire answers. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.